welcome to Pull Up with Miles and Owen. I am Owen Pence alongside my co-host Miles Ehrlich and we are extremely excited today to welcome a very special guest, the author of Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. Kate Fagan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for having me. Good pronunciation. Hoop Muses. It's a a mouthful. It's it's great. I love it. So Simone Augustus, one of Mm -hmm. the legends, curated this book. Uh, Sophia Chang did the illustrations and, and you need to get your hands on this book because the, the art is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Um, a little bit about our guest here. Kate Fagan is an Emmy award-winning journalist and the number one New York times bestselling author of what made Maddie run, which was long listed for the pen slash ESPN award. She currently works for Meadowlark media and writes for sports illustrated and previously spent seven years as a columnist and feature writer for ESPNW, ESPN.com, and ESPN The Magazine. All right. Thanks for that. (laughs) I also, I want to keep piling on because you've done so much great stuff. Um, At Metalark, Kate also co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Off the Looking Glass, alongside Jessica Smetana. I know you mentioned on a recent episode that famous people don't like being told how much their work is appreciated, <laughs> but I'm immediately going to break that rule because I'm super excited to talk with you. Um, so Kate, it's awesome to chat. Thank you for pulling up with us. Yeah. Thanks, Miles. Um, yeah. You'd have to be a famous person to, but, and I am not. So you can <laughs> praise my work because I am not a famous person. <laughs> Let's get into Hoop Muses, which comes out today, March 7th. It chronicles the history of women's basketball through a clever narrative framing device. It's set about 50 years in the future as one WNBA legend, who is unnamed, mm-hmm. uh, shares the history of the game to a young hooper ahead of the games, ahead of the W's 75th anniversary celebration. So first off, how did this collaboration with Simone come to be? Well, when we when I first started thinking about the idea, uh, I obviously I knew I needed an illustrator, and that was that was obviously a given. But then the more I started thinking about it, I realized that like it would take the book to the next level if there was like the ultimate insider to run everything by in the process of making the book. And you may like the best way to explain Simone's role is that like something very specific, right? Like, so one of the elements of the book is we kind of reimagine NBA jam, kind of that legendary game from a lot of our childhoods, if they had released a WNBA jam. And so imagine me trying to rank like Sue Bird's power meter on defense. I have never been guarded by Sue Bird, but I can text Simone Augustus and be like, I put Sue's power meter at X you know, is that right? And, she, you know, she'd write back and be like, yes, or it should be higher, or it should be lower. And so it was like being able to to have Simone and be able to say to her, like, okay, here are my best international players of all time, you know, and have her say, well, you're actually missing so-and-so who's super underrated. And just like, I feel like that adds that, like, you know, the subhead of the book is an insider's guide. And I don't think of myself as an insider at this point in the game of basketball, but Simone certainly is. So, Right from the outset, um, I and, and the key thing about Simone, too, is, like, we want the book to have swagger. Like, that is kind of one of the elements of the book. Like, you should look at the book and flip through and think, this book has swagger. And who in the history of the WBA, maybe Diana Taurasi, has more swagger than Simone Augustus? Like, there's not very many. So 
that's so being able to and she had just retired so being able to reach out to her and, and knowing that maybe she was at a point in her career where she'd be wanting to do different things all of those things were you know that's like the, her role in the book as well as why Simone was the perfect person for it I also don't want to give too much of this book away, but without Simone and you just mentioned DT, we don't get the first person account of the kiss. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That's in, I mean, that is a moment. I don't know if I was just obsessed with that moment when it happened, but it was actually one of the first moments like in pitching the book before we had sold it. It was like one of my key moments that I knew I needed to include because I felt like it encapsulated a lot about DT, Simone, as well as like where the W was in that moment. So I'm glad you brought up the kiss. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> it's one of those moments that like would have broken Twitter had the yes. W had W Twitter been what it is today. Oh my gosh. Yes. It would have gone. Yeah. People would have been going nuts over that. It's amazing. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, the book is stunning. It's like immediately the cover, you open it up, the inside of the cover. I don't know if there's an official name. There is. It's called End Papers, if you would like to learn alongside me. Yes, I learned as well. The (laughs) End Papers. I love that. You learn something new every day. So it, it's it it really just vibrant illustrations throughout this book and a really distinct voice too in, in the design. Um, and we mentioned Sophia Chang created all the art. What was that process like? Did the art inspire you in writing this or did that kind of come later on in the process? I think the art, the art inspires the energy of the book, but our, our actual working relationship was more like every time I wrote an essay, I would find like seven to eight inspiration photos from the essay. And so I, and then I would send Sophia the essay along with like, you know, if you go back in, back in time to some of the earlier ones, like um, let's say like the barnstorming clubs of the 1930s, I would send her a bunch of kind of archival photos you can find on the internet. And then I would send those to her and she would decide after reading it and seeing those photos, like which one most spoke to her. Um, so it was like, but, but so it was like this cyclical process of like my, my essay would inspire whatever artwork she delivered. But then the farther along we got, you started to understand the vibe of the book. And then the artwork is sort of inspiring the whole energy you want to bring to the book. So it was cyclical like that. That's really cool. Cause I always am so curious about that process and, and who's seeing what at what times, And I think for me, something that this book helped with was I wasn't actively a W fan growing up. I would I would catch games on TV. I grew up in New York, so the Liberty were always kind of in the background. I'd watch the big matchups. And so when I say this book taught me a lot, I've been covering the W for going on my fifth season now. So like those early days definitely escaped me, especially the pre WNBA days. The Cheryl Miller, Pat Summit, 84 Olympics anecdote might have been my favorite in the book. Do you have a particular story that really stuck out with you when you were doing your re- your research? Well, Miles, if you like that Cheryl Miller chapter, you're going to like the episode of Off the Looking Glass that we just dropped because it is Cheryl Miller telling a very similar story, So, but in audio format as opposed to book format. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. I And so you hear Cheryl Miller kind of telling this story of Pat Summit, which I think um, is... It just fills my heart with joy to be able to continually introduce 
people to these really wonderful, dynamic women from the history of the game who you may not. I mean, I think Cheryl Miller is somebody who has enough kind of cultural cred that we know her still. Um, but okay. So, but to your question, like I do love that Cheryl Miller Pat Summit story because I am borderline obsessed with Pat Summit as a nineties basketball kid. Like you just couldn't escape raise the roof, her, her books and everything. But my favorite story in the book is the story of the first ever college game in 1896 between Stanford and Cal. I doubt that the game was riveting itself. Cause I think it ended something like two, nothing. But again, yeah, remember, two or something or, like that. Yeah, there was no backboards. Like the rules of the game were still malleable, especially for women. But if you think about the hoopla around the game, right. That like the big papers in San Francisco sent female writers and female illustrators because it would have been scandalous to have men covering it. And yet men were like climbing the scaffolding to like peer in. So I think that game to me when, and that story was really revelatory because you actually see how much hype was around that game at the time. And the little detail that I love is that the only female co-eds were allowed to buy tickets to that game, but the proceeds from the game, and it was like 25 cents or 50 cents to get into the game. Um, they went to funding the Cal men's track teams upcoming road trip. So I'm like, so what if women's basketball hadn't been kind of canceled after that because it was unladylike? We, we might've had a completely different understanding of the relationship between men's sports and women's sports at the college level, instead of the kind of narrative of, women are always like the charity in the situation. Like at the outset, they weren't the charity, but when you hamper and you hamstring women's sports all along the way, both in this country and outside, of course you're going to end up in a position where like it never had a chance to grow. So all of those different like cascading effects of it. I'm curious to kind of jump into it because you're mentioning these historical elements. And I think a frustration that both Miles and I encounter and many people who cover women's basketball is sometimes a lack of resources when you're doing research on old stuff. It has gotten the the short shrift in terms of coverage forever. This is, this is not, you know, news. Yeah. Uh, but it, did, what was the research process like, especially for these early chapters where you are really going back into the history of the game? Were there difficulties you encountered with kind of source material and things like that? Yeah. So the the lack of coverage of the women's game, both historically, ends up for this book being a, an asset on one hand and then a detriment on the other. Like it's a double edged sword because I say it's an asset because I can tell you the story of the barnstorming all-American redheads who had to dye their hair red with henna. And if that had been men, we would have a amc tv show already <laughs> like i wouldn't be able to tell you that story you'd be like oh the all-american redheads they would be synonymous with the harlem globetrotters right so there's this freedom and if you're willing to do the work and find these stories that are very cinematic dynamic they're not like they're not one-dimensional boring history stories i mean they are they have tension they have story arcs so in that respect I can tell you all of these different stories from history and I'm fairly certain it will be the first time you're hearing them because of the power structure in sports. But as you mentioned, on, on the other hand, it also leaves me very little to read. And, you know, there, there are no 
audio files of these 1930s barnstormers because nobody thought it was important enough to create archival audio or, you know, print material. So you're, you're then going back to like the all black newspapers of Philadelphia, like the Philadelphia Tribune and like, and trying to find some of the articles that were written about some of these clubs. So that was really the process in terms of trying to piece together a lot of those older stories was I relied on like the essential work of a lot of, of women like Pamela Grundy and Susan Shackelford, who wrote this like all encompassing history of women's basketball called Shattering the Glass, who had done so much of that work. And I could kind of be able to see at every moment because they went through like the beginning of basketball in every decade and who was playing and where. And so they were a real kind of roadmap. Um, so, and then it was just trying to go back to newspaper recordings and the Black Fives Foundation, which has done a lot of work in lifting up the, the all black teams, both on the men's side and women's side of, of the thirties and forties in Chicago. So it was just, it was really piecemeal, but it felt like a big opportunity to like inject these things with like new life, especially on, alongside Sophia's, Sophia's work as well. It, reporting can be such a lonely process too, when you're digging through the crates and stuff like that. How collaborative was this, not just from your actual collaborators, you know, who were part of making this book, but in terms of people in the women's game that you talk to, whether it's journalists, players, coaches, et cetera, how, how many people did you talk to? I mean, I talked to um, kind of, I have it in the acknowledgements, like maybe 15 to 20 people, not I, on the outset. I wanted every essay within the book. I wanted to have like an, an original interview, but you know that, and I got that for a lot of them. Like I talked to, you know, Nancy Lieberman, Ann Myers, Cheryl Miller, um, you know, the, the, the photographer who shot the iconic 1996 SI cover. And like, you know, there's a list of people that I was able to talk with about, about the book. Um, but it, it got to the, there's certain chapters where I was like, Hmm, I don't know that there's anyone who can really shed any light on this. And then when I talked to like Charlotte Smith, who had hit the, you know, the iconic 1994 shot to give you North Carolina the NCAA title, but, but the collaborative process came about in like a really interesting way, which was that when I would go back, you know, in research, I felt like a kinship to the women who had done this already and who, and a lot of their work w was not going to end up on like the New York times bestseller list. Like women who like Linda Peavy, who spent years with her, with her research partner researching like the Fort Shaw team of the early 1900s that really helps you understand how the game was introduced to like the native American communities that we still see the impact of that today. So it was collaborative in a lot of interesting ways. Like, you know, some was legitimately speaking to women who I respect and have admired growing up playing hoops. And some of it was like going back in history and seeing the women who at that those times were trying to trying to create a, a, a history that even though it wasn't mainstream, they felt was important. And that felt like a kinship to me, too. Yeah, you were bridging those generations just by seeing the work that they had done, a lot yeah. of these women that aren't here anymore. And you were able to kind of bring their story into today, which I think is just dope. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. That's so cool. Uh, 
it, was there any anecdote in in the reporting and just talking with anyone, even just Simone, that you really loved that didn't make the cut? What what was the toughest thing, or even like a chapter? Were there things you would have loved to continue to delve into but couldn't do it? There's so there there's actually so many. I wouldn't say that there was like an amazing anecdote because I would have found a way to get that in the book, <laughs> but but more so it was like you know there's obviously there was a deadline when we had to send it to the printer. I absolutely wish I had a chapter on like the building of super teams in the W like I, I would, if the deadline was tomorrow, I'd, we'd have a chapter on Stewie going to New York and Candace going to the aces and this like kind of super team, you know, aces Liberty. I would love to have that in the book. We, we also went to print before Brittany was Griner was released from Russia. So, but I think, so there's, there's some sort of like deadline, issues where you just kind of wish that you could you could be writing this book forever and adding on and on and then there's you know the one thing with the book is that um there was this time period that came that I came to learn was the AAU time period of women's basketball history in like the 1940s and 50s where teams I had never heard of like Haynes Hosiery Nashville Business College the, the model of basketball during that time period, I didn't know. And it wasn't until the very end of the book writing process that I found um, a, a, a research paper and a book that illuminated this time period in history for me, but it was too late to go back and build long chapters. And so you'll see that like a lot of those women and those teams are in like I, the end chapters where we, we do like the top shots, the top moments, the top teams. So I would say that that's like one thing I sort of lament is I wish I had more like a couple chapters on those teams from that AAU period. Cause the model was so interesting. Like you could play for Nashville business college for 10 years. If you wanted to, you didn't, you didn't have to be going to school there. You could be, you could be a server at the diner down the street and just play for Nashville business college. And given our current model that we understand how basketball works, whether it's collegiate or the WBA, like, I found that fascinating and I wasn't able to get into it as much as I wanted. Well, now I'm going to need a sequel, even though this book is just coming out now. (laughs) Um, I, the AAU culture, even today kind of confounds me. That's kind of an empty, a little hole in my knowledge, but like I've been learning a lot about it. Just listening to Haley Jones podcast when she's talking about, you know, just all the brands and the different circuits that you go on and how all these players today know each other and that's fascinating to me but also very different so the evolution of how aau has impacted women's basketball is just so cool yeah um and i wanted to transition a little bit and we are going to get back to w super teams because we do have a couple of questions for you there yeah but owen and i have been covering the w for years so we're both kind of well aware of how difficult it is to find support for women's sports from deeper pocketed organizations so with Off the Looking Glass over at Metal Arc, I imagine that John Skipper and Dan Lebetard weren't just handing you and Jess the keys and saying, go talk about women's sports without an understanding that these metrics are rapidly growing, that it's a lack of exposure that is limiting the sports growth more than it is a lack of talent or of skill. So what does their investment in your podcast say about where we are or where we're headed towards handing a, mic- a megaphone towards these conversations that are happening in smaller bubbles at independent sites like we write for at Winsider or on W Twitter? And how can that amplification to a larger audience help to grow the Encore product? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what what John Skipper and Dan Levitard said to me when I started at Metal Arc was build the podcast of your dreams, right? So, and I think it was clearly with an eye, especially when you talk about John Skipper, it, like he things don't just pass, you know, things don't go over his head about what's happening in the sports media landscape. And so he knew and he was paying attention enough to say, like, I may not have the idea of what this podcast should be, right? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I know we need it. Whatever it is that you want to do when it comes to women's sports, I know it's relevant. I know we need it. I know it's the future. So go build whatever you want to build. And and also here are resources to do it. You know, because I think if you listen to Off the Looking Glass, you can feel that that's not a podcast where we just like, you know, are like bootstrapping it and like just hitting record and then putting it up. Like we are sound designing. Like we think of the sound design as as a almost like a third co-host on the podcast. And so there and then there's there's resources that we have for Off the Looking Glass that there's no way I would have had 10 years ago. I mean, no one would have said that off the looking glass was a good idea. And I think to the the kind of the broader question you're asking is like, I, you know, we can kind of tie this into just the history of, of, of the game as well as the present day is when you look to men's sports, like there is every angle of the game has been filled in. You, you've got the podcasts. Let's just say like you've got the documentaries, you've got the scripted series, you've got the podcast, you've got the game coverage, you've got the studio show. And you look to women's sports and historically it's like, I guess we'll put some games on TV, you know, like because like we have the NBA rights. So I guess we'll just get the WNBA rights and we won't tell people about it. We won't tell them the storylines. We won't fill in the history. We'll just put the games on TV and we'll hope people do all of the research themselves to understand who these women are and what the league storylines are. And I think now you're seeing an investment in like that, like that model, it, it actually has worked, which to me says something about the W in that it is, it still exists despite as Sue Bird has said to me, despite no one giving a shit, you know, it has made it through. But I think now you're like, let's fill every angle in. And it may not be every angle, but we need the daily coverage that talks about like who went where. And we need like off the looking glass tries to be like to fill in the history and to fill in like the joyful, fun aspect of what women's sports is. And so I'm, I'm as I look at like the media landscape, I'm like, everybody's now doing the thing that they are good at to tell these stories as opposed to just as opposed to just like putting the game on TV and hoping for the best. For sure. I think that when I was first getting onto the the New York Liberty beat, the way that I found my lane was by live tweeting the po- uh, the pregame and postgame pressers because they yeah. weren't put on TV. And then I kind of, then Liberty fans started following me and it kind of grew from there. But that just goes to show, yeah, how do you have like a, a double overtime game or whatever and then cut to wrestling or I don't know, pickleball yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It's like a fundamental um, misunderstanding of why we watch sports, you know, like the way that mostly male executives at like media companies, it's like, it's like, don't you understand why we watch sports? Like we don't watch sports. We watch sports. Like why do we watch the little league world series? It's certainly not because they are the best baseball players in the world. It's because we like, you know, we, we understand the storyline. Like anybody can get invested in this 12 year old 
this is the biggest moment of their life, right? I mean, you can get invested in that very quickly. And I'm not equating 12 year olds to WNBA players. I'm equating like what we watch sports for. And so the fundamental, I don't even know if it's a misunderstanding or if it's like, they didn't care, right? It's not like they misunderstood why we watch sports is that they just thought, "Mm, I I don't think it matters. I'd rather, I'd rather put my energy into like elevating the NBA from 98% 98% saturation to 98.1% saturation instead of, and I think Hoop News is a great example, is like, you know, it, it was three people and I think we're filling in a lot of gaps for basketball fans that help you understand the mythology and the lineage and we're just three people. But considering the complete dearth of historical mythology, mythologizing of women's sports, like it feels significant in a way that, would be much harder to achieve on the men's side. Yeah, it's almost also just like getting off of a treadmill that's going full speed when you finish watching one of these exciting games yes. without like a cool good analogy. Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, <laughs> my my fiance is very patient with how much basketball I need to watch. And for her, when she's going to sit down and watch a game with me, she's like, who's dating who, who used to be on the same team. She, she needs to approach it from that, from the storyline perspective before she can get invested in the game. So yeah, yeah, there's so many different angles that come to it. Uh, But you were talking about the production value on off the looking glass. And I wanted to talk a little bit and ask you about how you landed on the tone for the show, because the ad reads, which I hoped you were going to talk a little bit about, are always brilliant. But you managed to strike a balance there between finding laughs amidst the kind of bizarre shit that people are saying to take down women's sports, while never giving into that overwhelming negativity that can fill comment sections every time like ESPN or Bleacher Report just posts a picture of Asia Wilson. So like, how do you harness that humor and is it just in knowing which audience you want to cater your content to? Uh, you know, well, thanks for kind of acknowledging that we're walking a line there because I do think, you know, if anybody listens to it, we, we've had fake voice ma- voicemails from kind of misogynists, which are trying to encapsulate the things men have actually emailed me about the W or women's college basketball and trying to like create a, a character around that. And there are, when we were for black or better workshopping that idea, you know, there were women who were like, why do we even have to acknowledge, you know, who would like, mm-hmm. listen, I'd be like, don't even acknowledge that that exists. Don't even bring any negativity to it. But I, I think the way we're trying to do it is to spin that around and like really take, you know, I, when I was growing up, one of my dreams was to write for SNL. And so, and, and, you know, if you, if you look at anything that they're trying to do, it's like the, or Colbert or any of those shows that are trying to address really difficult political topics. And you're like, okay, well, sometimes spouting my opinion at the end of around the horn about the value of women's sports, like it really got to the point where I was like, no one's listening to that. That's not changing their mind. So let's try a new angle. That was kind of what we approached. That was like always the North star for off the looking glass. It was whatever we've been doing isn't working about how we're addressed, trying to like just shed light on the ridiculousness of the things people say about women's sports. Like let's take a completely new tact on it. And that was a North star. And then another one was just like the pure joy of what women's sports is. Cause you just throughout at least my time in the media, the only time I could get women's sports topic on a show at ESPN was like, if they're, 
was a fight or if there was drama or if there was somebody had come out as gay like there there was and it all felt like very heavy and if and at any time like a women a female athlete was like invited onto a big platform it was usually they had to like address really deep political issues and they had to be the spokesperson for it and i was like there's certainly a place for that cuz the work that the w does in particular on that stuff is invaluable but i was like my experience as a female athlete was much more just like sheer fun and joy. And I don't see that reflected very often in the media of it. It's always like, we got to do this for our daughters, you know, or like this is just, it all felt heavy. And so we wanted like off the looking glass to just completely kind of shift the paradigm on that front. I'm not saying we're the only people who have done that, but that was what we felt like would, and of course, tell the stories of history because if you have great sound design, you know, and a, a, a cool story, people will listen, especially on, on audio as opposed to necessarily video. So those were kind of all of like our thoughts going into trying to make it and construct it. This serves as such a perfect transition to my next question, because I wanted to ask about Aaliyah Boston, who was just recently your your uh, first guest here on mm-hmm. season three. And to me, the way she's been covered at South Carolina has been very tricky and in some ways kind of depressing. I think that there's been this yucky trend of framing her positives through like a negative lens of that video of her crying after losing to Stanford. Couldn't escape it. Every time she does something good, we're reminded of this game she lost. And so my question to you and having just talked to her is, is, you know, how much positivity does she radiate? Like, who is this person? She just seems like such a joy to talk to. Yes. And that's kind of like our ethos at Off the Looking Glass is if we could only talk to, uh, you know, people in the world of women's sports about like the most, what seemed to be trivial things, we probably would. Because (laughs) Aaliyah Boston or like any other female athlete, they're often like very much asked to like, address something um and Aaliyah is just like a big kid bundle of joy with like the biggest laughter and smile and we just we were like well what can we do to try to to bring that out in like a longer stretch and that's really what we try to do with any with any interview is like we 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 interviewed Tara Vanderveer it hasn't been released yet um which was a which was much more difficult to get to the joyful place, you know, because not because I don't think she is joyful, but because she is just like, I think you have to know her for years and years before maybe you get the inside scoop. So like, we'll see how that interview airs because it's mostly us really trying for laughter and getting none of it. Um, but, but that, I mean, but that's kind of what we want to approach it with is like, just trying to introduce people to like, who these people really are beyond the very like what can seem like a clear agenda from media that like if we're talking to Aaliyah Boston we have to get her to talk shit about Gino I mean not that we don't try to do that stuff because we we do but we just want to bring more joy to it Mm -hmm. I mean I did particularly enjoy you trying to bring Aaliyah into that UConn discourse did the best we Uh, could (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was she's polished she's she's in college but she's a pro already when it comes to yes. avoiding those landmines yeah uh, I do personally believe that the competitive edge in college ball is sharper when there are more teams that can win so are 
dominant teams like UConn back in the day where they won over 100 straight or the Gamecocks now who have rolled through most of the season in a title defense already. Are those teams good for college basketball? I think they have their place in in history. And I think that they're crucial to like laying the foundation of the game because certainly a team like UConn was a, a lightning rod and a source of you know, power and all, all of the necessary things at a time when women's basketball needed that, you know, it was like, I don't think you could have said in the late nineties and early two thousands to like your average editor in chief at a newspaper, you know, can you go cover whatever team in women's basketball? And they would have said yes. But if you say like UConn, they're like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Like if they were only going to cover, they were either going to cover UConn or nothing. And if UConn didn't exist, then there would be no coverage really, except for the very, you know, the final four, the NCAA title. And then it probably would have been an AP writer, right. Who you're just, who you're, you're re um, republishing. So I think that they certainly, I think what we try to do on off the looking glass, if you take the case of UConn is like, we're not trying to answer the question of whether they're bad for the game or good for the game. We're trying to give you context about what, and maybe a new way of thinking about, how specifically in women's sports, a team like UConn gains snowballed advantages that in a a media landscape in men's sports is impossible. And that if structures were equal, a team like UConn would have its time and place, but it's like long-term dominance and media domination would look very different. So, and so in trying to get people to think a little differently about that, like that was kind of our thing about UConn privilege, like that we were trying to talk about, which was, you know, you don't, the, the, you, in the media landscape, like UConn had an outsized proportion because in women's sports, people just have the rule of one. Like if we, you know, we just, we, we don't, we can only care about like one female athlete in each sport. Like we just don't have the room to understand any better. Um, and I think we're breaking away from that. So, and I think that's, I think getting to a place where like Indiana, right. is like, you know, a team like that is kind of stepping onto the stage. I think all of that is good too, because we women's college basketball can't be, you know, one like UConn hands the, Tennessee hands the mantle to UConn. UConn hands the mantle kind of to Notre Dame, right? Back and forth. And now South Carolina, like going forward, and I think every coach we've talked to says that, like it needs to be, and I think it's going to be, especially the way media is changing and all of it is changing. Like it needs to be like some drama at the end of like you'd need to have the drama at the end of the season. And I think that we've had more of that. And I think we'll continue to have more and more as good as South Carolina is. I don't think they're going to win every game in the tournament by 30 points. You know, I think another element of it too, it's not necessarily saying that like UConn was bad for the game. I don't think they were in any stretch, but you don't see, you know, highlights shared of a 30 point win five years later. But what we do see, what literally popped up on my timeline this morning was Arike Agumbawale hitting shots in March Madness. March is here. And then we see those shots again, and it just brings back this rush of good memories, at least for me. That's Mm -hmm. my favorite Final Four of all time. Um, But I think that, you know, once Brianna Stewart graduates and then 2017, Morgan William hits that iconic shot, ends the streak 
Asia and Don, you know, win their first title, the next year you have the Arike shots. It, it, it did kind of bring along this this new era, which is has been really fun to be in and really dynamic. And I think you addressed it in the book of like, there have been close games, a lot of really close games in these final fours recently, which, which there weren't, you know, previously. So I guess, you know, my question here is is kind of vague, but h- how fun was it considering the the Notre Dame-UConn back and forth? Because that, that's a fun, like, kind of pivot point moment for me. Yeah, because UConn-Notre Dame is, and UConn-Tennessee, they genuinely don't like each other. We don't have to pretend like they like each other. Like, I, it's not, oh, we're just doing this for the cameras, you know, like a wrestling match. Like, they, they genuinely have issues with each other and as you know my co-host on off the looking glass Jess likes to point out like we want we want that you know like and a lot of like old school people within women's sports will be like we don't we all have to be on the same page and rowing in the same direction and like there is a time and place for that I do understand but we are to the point now where like we do want like we want the genuine anger at one another like we want the genuine you know, villain hero, whether, whether you're on the side of Muffet McGraw as a villain or you're on the side of Gino as a villain. And so I think the Notre Dame UConn rivalry and, and that like period of time where it was kind of crazy going through and like creating, um, a, you know, a, a separate box for the book where I go through and I look at their head to head competitions over like a 10 year period. And I'm like, wait, this can't be accurate. They played in the semifinal this year. They played in the final this year. They played in the final this year. They, like, it was crazy. And it wasn't lopsided. It was in it. So stuff like that, you're just kind of, it, it brings you a lot of joy to, to see. Because sometimes from the outside, you, you know, when, if I go out into my regular life, it's not like my friends and people I know want to talk about women's sports, you know? And you're like, am I crazy to think this is actually a really fun, cool, dynamic thing? And then you look at something like the Notre Dame UConn rivalry and you're like this is the stuff of like a th- this is a 30 for 30 you know like this or whatever your you know your your container is for like a cool sports documentary like we, that should be a 30 for 30 in a couple years is explaining how that happened how Notre Dame got to where it was and like and that time period and like the legendary battle between them I had a couple of points because you just are hitting on so much that I just am constantly following up um, first of all, Owen played it super cool talking about Notre Dame. We, I remember <laughs> last year after a Liberty game, we went to grab a, a drink at the bar and that final four was on and I just lost him for the next two hours. And I'm like, yeah. you've seen this game like a dozen times. Yeah. So just you being able to try to like be unbiased while asking about that was great. Listen, I co-host off the looking glass with a Notre Dame alum. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, like this is my life. <laughs> uh, I also just wanted to talk a little bit. I was, I, I already brought this up once about Haley Jones podcast. Sometimes I hoop. And she just had an episode with Haley Van Lith where she was talking mm. about Louisville having this rivalry. I think it was with Notre Dame. And she was like, I don't know why, but like they hate us and we hate them. And it's like this weird, like Hatfield and McCoy kind of thing where it's like, it's a generational beef and yes. they don't even know where it started, but you're kind of like born into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Where I want to. I want to see more. Know? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like thinking geogra- geographic. I mean, a little bit geographic, yeah. maybe, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a great game, that Notre Dame Louisville game the other day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm all over the place now. And 
I did want to transition us to talk about while one team kind of growing to dominance might not be as fun for the sport, multiple teams where we're talking about the WNBA and the growth of the super team, although that's a weird thing because there have been super teams for as long as the league has existed. It started with a four Pete. Uh, yeah. But having these from a media perspective, having this East West rivalry come to be and having two juggernauts on, on either side and in time zones that can kind of jump across. Is that good for the growth of the game? Yeah. And I think the distinction to your point about like the Comets winning those first four titles is like, this is the first time where there's been like the players themselves created these teams as opposed to like, you know, one thing I learned in writing hoop muses was like the, the mistake the W made in Cynthia Cooper, which just seems shocking in retrospect that like she actually has this anecdote that she called the ABL, the league that was launching alongside the WNBA back in the day and asked to try out, like asked to be a part of their league. And they were like, we're good. And so it was like this complete misunderstanding of who Cynthia Cooper was, which is just like a little nugget in history. But I think that the, so this like player created super team to me is a, I think it's perfect for where the WNBA is now. I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, and because you look at like, you know, the only thing we have to compare it to in terms of like business is the NBA and the different models that it represents. I wouldn't say that I think super teams in the NBA are, would be great now, but there was a moment in time where it made a lot of sense for where they were and how they wanted to sell themselves to the public. And I think for the W, I think the Liberty having never won a title is the greatest thing that has ever happened to the W right now. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say historically they're happy about that because of the media market of the New York and everything. But right now, to be able to tell the story of like, you know, not exactly this, but like your prodigal daughter returning home, even though she's from like Syracuse. And where are you from in New York, by the way? I'm from Brooklyn. So okay. I'm from Albany. I, so oh, okay. like, yeah, we've got a little triangle we're building there. Um, <laughs> so it's like this very clear story that the NBA can now tell, like, Liberty have never won a title and Brianna Stewart's going to deliver it alongside, you know, Sabrina and all of the other like pieces they've built. And then you've also got like the media market. Personally, I just think it's like in this moment in time where I think people's ears outside of, you know, avid sports fandom for the W are thinking or maybe hearing a little bit more about the W to be able to hand them on like a silver platter, the storyline of this coming season at a moment in time when they might be willing to listen is a gift to the W. Now, do I think in 10 years, I'm going to still want these kind of super teams? Maybe not. But right now, leading into this season, it seems perfect for where they're at. It's so true. It's it's like eerily similar in terms of where the league was at from a timeline perspective to Lakers Celtics in the 80s. It's like such an easy comparison. And I hate to do the, the cross to the NBA, but I do think it's relevant here with them being at that juncture around year 25, year 30, pivotal points where the league is kind of on the cusp of this really serious growth, but there's something that needs to be the catalyst for it. And um, it's it's really cool to be embarking on this. Well, we're we're nearing the end here, so I want to do a little rapid fire round. We're going to hit you with some some predictions here, so, so buckle up. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, we talked about Aaliyah Boston, uh, likely going to be the first pick in in next month's WNBA draft. But is she your national player of the year? 
I have bias because I just find her so fun um, yes. and like just charming. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think she's. I mean, I I have to talk to Caitlin Clark, right? Like, not that I I pick my national player of the year based on like how how fun and interesting <laughs> a, I think they that's are. That's a great but, way to do it. I think it is. <laughs> I love um, it. But so I guess I would say Aaliyah currently is considering where the Gamecocks are in, you know, on inter, uh, number one and like all of that. Um, but I guess there is a part of me that would likes to spread the wealth, but so, yeah, so I'm going to say Aaliyah Boston is my player of the year. Do you, do you all do, do the two of you have different feelings about that? Well, miles can know again, I'm not going to be a, a, you know, a good journalist here and, and Notre just, Dame I see okay so well I, I'm Notre Dame I, hey I'd love Olivia Miles to, to oh my to god win. she's so good he's so she's good. just so much fun to watch oh, best passer in college it's crazy and it's funny because like when we when I was watching the Louisville Notre Dame game and like I was texting Jess Matana and I was like she looks like somebody who would not be picked on the playground you know like with the goggles but <laughs> yeah but they add to the allure of her game it's just like the opposite of what you would think it is. It, totally. So she's so fun. So she is she your is she your pick? No. So I I am I do also have South Carolina bias. Huge Asia fan. Huge Don fan. I think the thing that that tilts me in Aaliyah's direction, while I acknowledge my bias, is the defense. Like defensively going up against Angel Reese, who's just been killing it all season. And just kind of locking down the best players in the in the in the whole country. I, I'm just mesmerized by her defense, and I think it's been such a constant. And obviously, she's offensively gifted. That said, when Caitlin Clark hit the shot the other oh. day in Indiana, yep. and then said, yeah. "I knew it was money." It's like, yeah. how do you not? It's really tough to to not give the award to her, given you know that Iowa doesn't have the supporting cast. It's so tough. You could go yeah. either way. I'm voting Aaliyah, but it's tough. <laughs> also, can we just wait, wait, sorry. Can we just like when Caitlin says she knew that was in anybody who's played a lot of basketball sees how that shot went in the basket and knows that she did not know it was going in because it like <laughs> hits the edge and swirls in. It's not one of those shots where you're like money from the outset. So totally. that's just pure swagger by Caitlin there to say that in the aftermath of it. 100%. I love the it. arm around Holly Rowe also where she's oh. exhausted. And she's doing the, um, the yeah. lean down, you know, the bowed head, listen to the question, which is like the, <laughs> the, the iconic NBA kind of like, I'm listening. Yep. <laughs> it's all, it's all part of it. It's all part of it. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that maybe just because I need to go opposite you guys. I think that that game, put Caitlin over the top because that's the highlight that I don't think a lot of media people can be objective when they're hitting these awards. Yeah. And so many people are going to go back to that highlight of taking out the number two team in the country at with a game winning three in the last second. And that's just what you can play as she accepts the award. I think Caitlin gets it this year, but both of those are the right answer. Yeah, so yeah, it's true. I'm, They're I'm both right. I don't vote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a perfect transition to our next quick hitter, which hasn't been super quick. Yeah. Um, we were just talking about Indiana being upset, but, and you talked about them before as maybe being a team that could surprise South Carolina. If you had to pick from the rest of the field, who has the ability to knock off the Gamecocks? I would probably say Stanford just because of their style of play feels like it's something, I mean, you know, 
I've, I've watched them play at times and not necessarily this year, but previous years where like you're mesmerized at their movement and the way that they're moving off the ball. Um, and I'm biased again because we've had, we have, we, we talked to Cameron Brink recently. And I, so I'm kind of like invested in them emotionally, but I, oh, you know, and I'm never going to say UConn. So don't even like, I'm not even going to be willing to, to play that. Uh, <laughs> so for me, I see Stanford. I think Iowa could, like, if Caitlin Clark just went crazy one yeah, if they night. Get hot, they could beat anybody. Yeah. So, and and that would be such a storyline. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Stanford because I really, really enjoy their style of play, and I feel like they kind of like can cut through angles in a way that I ha- that I think could 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 possibly be more of like a, a Achilles heel to to South Carolina. That's my answer too. I think people are sleeping on Stanford still. They, they, they've forgotten what they did in 2021. Like Haley yeah. Jones is unbelievable. Cameron Brink is, is so good. Uh, we talked about the super teams, WNBA finals. Are you picking New York? Are you picking Vegas? Or do you have a, a, a third sleeper candidate who's, who's winning the title? I don't know. What do you all think? I mean, I, I got to see what else the, the Mercury do. I think I'm like, I just, maybe I'm emotionally attached to them because of the story that that would be. I mean, imagine, you know, Tarazi and BG reunited, uh, you know, obviously the background with, with BG's last year, maybe I'm just emotionally attached to that. I, I'm not sure that I think that they have the firepower to get it done. Right. Um, and, but you like, I, this is new to a lot of us. Like obviously talent wins regardless of gender but I, I haven't seen how super teams play out necessarily, like this way that they've been created. Because I heading into last season, the only evidence you have is like the Mercury looked like a super team. And it just imploded for reasons that we can't replicate with BG and Russia. But Tina Charles and then Skylar Diggins and, and yeah. that kind of falls apart in a way where you're like, hmm, is there a different model in the WNBA where super teams don't? You know, because of everything, maybe because of, you know, the way they fly, because of the contracts, like maybe they don't work as well in the WNBA as the NBA. I mean, I'm just completely hypothesizing here. I don't really have any, any insider knowledge or like feeling about that. So I, I guess ultimately I would assume talent's going to win out and it seems like nobody can touch the aces and the Liberty on that front, but maybe, maybe the Mercury or my sleeper, if they pick up like a couple key pieces and BG, BG returns to form. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know know. what we're going to get from Skylar, right? Yeah. And if she's going to come back and play this season. But the last time that we saw her on a court in New York, she was, the team was down 25 and she was yelling at Vanessa Nygaard to take her out of the game. So it didn't look good. There's still a lot to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And last of the quick hitters is you're a huge sneakerhead. So let's frame that through the lens of hoop muses. Fast forward to 2072. Which WNBA great from today is going to put together the legendary sneaker mm. drops that are all the rage 50 years from now? Oh, that's a good one. Well, th- that's interesting because we don't have a lot to choose from right right now. I have to use my imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, the only option I have is to say Candace Parker's Adidas line or Cheryl Swoop's, Swoop's Nike line really right now. But I guess I'm going to say that either... Caitlin or Paige Beckers are going to have some great line in the 2030s. And that's what we're going to be re-releasing. Let's, let's just say I see that. It. Let, I we'll see say the vision. That. Yeah. What about, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, Asia, I, I want Asia on everything. Okay, you're, you're on Asia. And and Dawn Staley's <laughs> shoes, they weren't like the same as like the swoops, but her shoes from the late 90s and early 2000s, like I think they were kind of a Zoom model. Mm -hmm. They're really, really cool. And they haven't, I don't even think we need to wait until 2072. Like I want a re-release of those now. There's no reason that Nike shouldn't be redropping a Dawn Staley inspired sneaker like right now. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Retweet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. I, I, I want to close with, I loved the halftime speeches portion of the book. It, it was such a good kind of like, uh, it, there's so much fun stuff in here and, and like really just awesome hypotheticals to consider and so much great historical stuff, but it was a cool reset of just kind of taking stock of where things at are at and kind of addressing head on some things that you hear that are kind of dismissive sometimes about women's basketball, et cetera. And a specific quote uh, stuck out to me that, that I'm going to read here from Don Staley. Again, the transitions have just been seamless here. Uh, <laughs> here's what Don said. If we pour into the W what they poured into the NBA from year 25 to 50, we'll have a team in every city and we'll fly charter and we'll have sneaker contracts that are multi-million dollar deals. I loved that. I thought that was so great. So my question here, final question to close, is where do you see the WNBA going from year 25 to 50? It's a very vague question. You can yeah. take it whatever direction you want, but but what do you kind of envision as the next steps for this league? I think that the growth trajectory they're on makes it, unless there's something we're missing or some 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 you know, issue in the future that is unforeseen. It seems pretty clear right now that franchise valuations, contracts, you see the 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 um, TV rights deal that like the MLS signed with Apple and their, their metrics are pretty similar to the WNBA. Now, I know our world and it doesn't matter if they're similar, the WNBA will get a third of what MLS got. But even if they get a third, that's an injection of capital that is you know, quick math, like triple what they currently have for their, for their TV rights deal. And you'd have to assume that whoever is willing to, whoever wants to seek out the WNBA rights is going to be really smart about doing the opposite of what ESPN did, which was like actually building like miles was talking about, like after the game, the treadmill slows down and there's a post game show, you know, yeah. And you get to you get to do, use the roller on your muscles. And there's a studio show that introdu introduces you to the storylines or whatever they might build around it. So I think that I think the growth of the W to me seems inevitable. It's such a no brainer. It, it is just an under harvested area. The question I ask myself is, I don't know if my ima imagination is strong enough to answer the question of whether like mimicking the men's sports model success indicates success. Like the best I could do in hoop muses was imagine a future with, you know, a hundred million dollar contract because we have those in the NBA. But I do think female athletes are different than male athletes in a lot of ways. And so the question, I guess maybe the question might be for year 50 to year 75, which is will women think hoarding wealth is the best way to, to, to deem success in a sports league or will they want to be different? Let's say in CBA year 2053, will they say we need to give a portion of TV proceeds back to youth teams? Like things like, I just think that women's sports does not have to always follow 
the male sports model. But I think right now we don't know what it could look like because we're because for years we've just been trying to survive. Um, but that's the question I ask myself is like, will women deem success different once they have reached a level of success and financial success where they don't have to worry about the issues we've been worrying about? I love that. Uh, well, if it has not already been made abundantly clear, Kate, you're an extremely qualified person to have written about all the angles oh, <laughs> and you. histories of, of women hooping. Again, Hoop Muses is available today wherever you buy your books. And if you've got bandwidth for more podcasts, more than this one, Awful Looking Glass <laughs> is also streaming on all audio platforms. Episodes dropping weekly now, which I'm excited about. Um, so huge thanks to you, Kate Fagan, for pulling up with us today. Yeah. Thanks, Miles and Owen. I was more of a three-point shooter than a pull-up jumper, but I always wanted to have a good pull-up. I appreciate that. As someone who rarely picks up a ball, <laughs> I appreciate that. That's the guest we strive to get. Pulling up from three. Let's go. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs>